Hey, welcome to episode 11 of Out on a Limb. I'm Alina. I'm a certified orthotist and board-eligible prosthetist. And I'm Alyssa. I'm also a certified orthotist and board-eligible prosthetist. We started Out on a Limb to bring the world of orthotics and prosthetics to everyone and share our passions. Stay tuned to learn about the ins and outs of a small side of the medical field and everything we do as practitioners. This episode, we have Brittany to talk with us about her specialty in the OMP field, cranial remolding helmet. Today, we have Brittany back with us speaking about cranial remolding helmets, something very near and dear to Brittany's heart. She has been on a few other episodes with us, the OG episodes. We're only at episode 11, but we already have the original dream team. Um, She is going to chat with us about helmets. I already said all this. Moral of the story is Brittany is here. Say hello, Brittany. Hi, everyone. It's me again. Um, again, my name is Brittany. I am a certified prosthetist, orthotist, and I um, graduated with my master's in prosthetics and orthotics in 2015 from Cal State Dominguez Hills and um, completed my two-year residency and continue to work with uh, or at prosthetic and orthotic group in Southern California. Very exciting. Welcome. Glad to have you back. Yes. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So like Alina had mentioned, you're going to talk to us about cranial remolding helmets, um, or as we'll most likely refer to throughout this episode as just helmets, (laughs) (laughs) Um, just for a little shorthand. So Brittany actually, that's her main focus is helmets, and she has trained me on helmets as well. Right. So I've worked with quite a few helmets. She is... The original specialist still maintains the specialist, the <laughs> go-to person. The well, I'm not quite the original. I was taught as well. But <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll you've gone that. Yeah. far above and beyond. Yeah. And <laughs> you've gone way more research over the last few years of seeing a lot of helmets. So we're going to kind of pick your brain today a little bit and just get more knowledge out there about helmets because it is right. a very small niche specialty that we have in our field because not every office sees helmets and not every practitioner sees helmets yeah like I don't see helmets for example it's not my cup of tea and there's (laughs) a lot to it that I just don't really understand it's Um, not for everyone (laughs) no and we've mentioned it a few times in other episodes as well but this is going to be a fun one because we'll really kind of get nitty-gritty nitty-gritty information and kind of Give Brittany her chance to shine because this is a topic that, well, between the two of you, I'm sure you have a lot to say about. Yep. It. Don't be afraid to cut me off if I start uh, talking too much because <laughs> I can definitely talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you start with just for those who don't know, kind of saying what is a cranial remolding helmet? Yeah. So a cranial remolding orthosis or a helmet is a device. It looks like a bike helmet to some extent, um, but it's for babies uh, under one year of age, typically. And we'll, again, we'll probably talk more about that later, but um, it helps reshape their heads um, because they have flat spots on them somewhere. And so the helmet will help reshape and round out that flat spot, um, make it more symmetrical and so that they don't have that deformity for the rest of their life. And 
you know, there's multiple different shapes that we see. It's not always just kind of one little flat spot. Can you go over the typical head shapes that you see a lot? Yes, for sure. So the most common is called plagiocephaly. And this is asymmetry of the head. So it's where one side um, in the back of the head is flatter than the other. And there's usually also um, an ear shift and flattening along the frontal bones or the forehead as well. Um, And the helmet can help correct um, all of that. The next most common head shape is what we call brachycephaly which is widening of the head. So you can think of it as the head is a little bit wider than normal and shorter. This can also, they can have asymmetrical brachycephaly, which would be a combination between plagiocephaly and brachycephaly. And then the last uh, major head shape is called scaphocephaly. And this is elongation of the head um, where it's long and skinny. So kind of the opposite of what brachycephaly is. Um, and there's flattenings where brachycephaly is flattening along the back of the head and scaphocephaly is flattening along the sides of the head. Very cool. And talking about the different head shapes, there are different causes for this. Um, one would be just spending a lot of time on the back of their head or the way they're positioned in utero, um, something that's called torticollis. There's a lot of different things that can go into it. Another one it, craniosynostosis. Can you go over all those different things a little bit more detail for everyone? Yeah. So I do want to clarify that there is a big difference between what we call deformational plagiocephaly and craniosynostosis. Um, And both are, you know, they're, they're very different. And both can be treated with a helmet, but in different ways. So I first want to start off by saying there is a big difference between uh, craniosynostosis and what we call positional plagiocephaly. Uh, Most of what we talk about today is going to focus on the positional plagiocephaly, but I want to take a minute to explain the differences. So craniosynostosis is actually premature fusion of the sutures in the skull. Um, And just a little bit of background, infant skulls uh, are not all connected into one single bone like they are as an adult. Uh, There's several different bones that are separated by what we call sutures. And if one of those sutures closes up too early, it can actually affect uh, the head shape and um, limit some of the brain growth. So it can be very serious, um, but it does need to be corrected with surgery. Uh, And there's two different types. There's total reconstruction or now with technology and advancement in the medical field, you can do an endoscopic surgery, which is much less invasive, less blood loss, and they can be done much younger. And so the post-operative cranial helmets actually come into play for those endoscopic cases because what they do is they they release the suture or pull out the fused suture and use the helmet to reshape the head. Um, Whereas cranial vault reconstruction... During the surgery, they take all the bones out, reshape them, put them back. So the head comes out of surgery already corrected. It doesn't necessarily need a helmet for reshaping. So that is craniosynostosis. Again, kind of its own specialty. And what we're going to focus on today is deformational plagiocephaly, which is deformation of the head or um, some sort of flatness on the head caused by an external force. To clarify, an external force can be in utero or after birth. But it's, an, it's a force on the outside of the head itself. So even in utero, it's outside of the head. A common cause in utero would be uh, mom having twins, so multiple birth, because there's less space in there for two babies. So it's more likely that one or both of the heads are going to be kind of squished against something, causing a flat spot. 
can also be caused by the birthing process. If you, you need suction or forceps, anything like that can cause deformation of the head. A lot of times it self-corrects, but if it doesn't, a helmet can be used to help correct it. And one of the most common uh, causes is something we call torticollis. So that's tightening of the one of the muscles in the baby's neck. And what that muscle does is it allows for lateral tilt and rotation of the head. So if that muscle is tighter on one side than the other, it limits the baby's range of motion and forces them to always be in the same position. So when they're laying down, they're always laying on the same side of their head and allows that head to flatten out. Other outside forces could just be a preferred sleeping position. There's no torticollis, but the baby just likes to look a certain direction when they lay down. Yeah. Typically towards mom and dad, if that is the case. Yeah. So one of my recommendations, if that is the case, if they're always looking into the room is to flip them 180 in the crib. So that way they turn their head and start looking the other way. Uh, and they don't always lay on that same flat side of the head. Is torticollis caused by anything in particular or is it just something that can develop? Um, so it's, Research shows that about 2% of all babies are actually born with torticollis. But when we talk about the plagiocephaly world um, that I live in, (laughs) uh, it's kind of the chicken or the egg question. It's unclear whether the baby has torticollis, which causes plagiocephaly, or if they develop plagiocephaly, limiting their ability to move around, which then leads to tightness in the neck because they're they're preferring to lay in a certain position. Mm. So it's unclear which one comes first. I think in some cases it's just congenital and they're born with it. Whereas in other cases it develops because of a preferred position that they lay in. And both of them are kind of corrected the same and it doesn't matter which came first at the end of the day, the torticollis and the plagiocephaly need to be treated. Gotcha. So we mentioned, or like Alyssa mentioned, this is kind of a niche field a niche thing like you two do it our office does a lot of cranial but that doesn't mean every O&P office does a lot of cranial and just in general you don't really see a lot of helmets and maybe you see them a little bit more now in the media and in television shows like we've talked about in previous episodes but why do you think like historically speaking were helmets a very popular thing do you think they're more popular now and like what sort of things have gone into effect to have made those changes if that makes sense like yeah so I get a lot of grandparents in the office that say well I never heard of this or I never (laughs) had to do this with my kids I don't understand Um, and I do explain to them that there was actually a program by the American Academy of Pediatrics that came out in the early 1990s called the back to sleep program so I'm a mother now and it's crazy for me to think that babies ever slept on their stomachs (laughs) Um, but I actually my mom told me I slept on my stomach and I always laugh I say how did I survive because if you have a child in the world today you know that they need to sleep on their backs Uh, and the reason for that is to prevent sudden infant death syndrome or something called SIDS Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically suffocation while sleeping um, in infants and so by sleeping them on their backs you highly prevent SIDS and it was a very successful program SIDS greatly decreased um, because of this program so it's continuing to be a recommendation to sleep babies on their backs but that also leads to more flatheads um, <laughs> because if they're there when they're awake and they're not able to roll over yet and they're not being held 24 seven. They're spending a lot of time on their backs because you don't want them on their tummy to suffocate. And so on top of that, then when they're sleeping, they're also on their back. They're just spending a lot of time and gravity 
takes its course and causes flat spots if they're always laying in the same position. Um, so it's really important and we encourage that they do as much tummy time as they can when they're awake, but they also pay attention when their child is sleeping, that they're not always turning their head to the same direction because over time that can lead to flatness. And then another thing that I always mention to parents too, and especially more grandparents, because I get that same question all the time, right. and it's typically coming from grandparents, mm-hmm. is... You know, I hate to say it's technology, but technology has changed. We now have the car seat that turns into the stroller that turns it, you know, so it's like you don't, it's not that, it's that idea of you don't want to wake up a sleeping baby. So if they fall asleep in the car seat, just take out the whole car seat, put it into the stroller, stroll, you know, them into the house. So you're not picking them up as much because you don't want to wake them up. You want to, yeah. so sometimes it's just them spending a lot of time in their carriers. And it's that same idea that Brittany was just talking about. It's just time on the back of their head and gravity. I know from my limited, limited experience, um, I did see a few NICU babies. So babies in the hospital. Yes, definitely. That tends to be a factor as well. So it Absolutely. makes sense. Yep. Any time that they're going to be spending a lot of time laying on their heads, whether it be the sides, the back, the, it can lead to flattening when they're really young. That's the thing that I think is... Personally, so fascinating, not doing a lot of helmets, but the, understanding the idea of helmets is that babies' heads are so malleable, Yeah, which is very like a soft. weird concept to think about where it's like you can change a baby's head shape. Well, I mean, not to get graphic, but just imagine the birthing process. I mean, that's <laughs> it's developed for a reason. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> You're not wrong. Says okay. the one person out of us that I has know. a kid. <laughs> yeah, the person with the child. Yes, there there is some reason behind it. It's necessary, but yeah, it can it definitely uh, leads to more more flatness and flatheads that we have to round out. But it's easily fixable with the helmet, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brittany, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, and you have way more experience than I do. So, why has helmets become so taboo? Like. Not too long ago, Chrissy Teigen came out and showed that her son had a helmet and she got, got some mean comments and like what? Which I was so happy that she put that out there in the media because I feel like people do try to hide it. Yeah. I even get comments from my parents that they don't want to go out in public and they, you know, some even will just take it off anytime they're in public, which is not recommended. You need to wear it 23 hours a day. We'll talk about that. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it has this negative stigma to it. And I I think it's I don't think I know it's just a lack of knowledge people don't know what it's for they don't understand it and the the heartbreaking comments that I get from parents when they come to me is that the comments that other people give them when they are out in public with their children right almost always they'll come up to the parent and say well what's wrong with your kid you know or you know is your I've had a mom come to me crying because someone asked her is your kid stupid and you know these are I've babies. Heard that same and question of what's wrong with them, or basically saying, are they stupid? What yeah. do they hit their head all the time? Yeah, they think that there's something developmentally, mentally wrong with these kids because they're in a helmet, which is crazy to me. I'm I just would never say that to a stranger, even if I thought it. But I I don't get why they think that. Um, and what I always advise the parents is to educate. I always tell them, I'm sure it's hard in the moment. I can only imagine what you're feeling along with being embarrassed and sad and angry. Um, But I tell them, 
the reason they're saying this is because they don't know, they don't understand, and they're not educated on the subject. So try to use that as an opportunity to educate them, to avoid them from making somebody else feel the way that you felt. Um, and so I always tell parents that they just don't know. And if you can enlighten them about what's going on, then that can help. And that's why I was so happy that Chrissy Teigen was so open and honest about her process with it because it put it out there in social media for so many more people to see and to learn about and know what it is and again prevent that stigma from affecting other parents so getting back to the helmet aspect of it a little bit can you I feel like you've kind of described what a helmet does what it's trying to control but like I'm sure a lot of people ask your parents ask or other people ask the parents does the helmet hurt the baby at all like you can kind of yes, go and I get that question a lot yeah describe <laughs> like what is a helmet doing to the how head? does it work yeah yeah and does it hurt the baby yes because of it course is trying to control that flatly. yep so I explain this to each one of my parents when I do the initial evaluation I explain um, what plagiocephaly is which we already discussed but then I also go into how the helmet works to correct the head shape because uh, a lot of people don't know. They they know that they come and get a helmet and they're, it will round their kid's head out, but they don't know why or how that happens. Uh, so what we do is uh, the helmet is providing contact over what we call the bossed areas, which is the high spots or the opposite of the flat spots. And by having contact in those areas, it prevents them from getting bigger or becoming more bossed. Then there's a voided space in the helmet where the flat spots of the head are. So for brachycephaly, there would be a big voided space in the back of the helmet, whereas plagiocephaly, there would be voided space more on one side than the other due to the asymmetry. And scaphocephaly would have voided space on the sides of the helmet. So that voided space allows room for growth. And so as that baby's head grows, it fills in the voided space and grows in the direction that we want it to. So I explain and I reiterate to the parents, this does not hurt their child in any way. It's not slowing their head from growing. It's not preventing their brain from growing by any means. Their head is going to grow at the rate that it wants to and that nature entailed for it to. What the helmet is doing is just redirecting where the growth goes. So rather than growing everywhere or growing more in that bossed area, we're going to direct it to grow in the flat spot and kind of even everything out. With that being said, we can't push it in. So I get a lot of parents who say, well, it's a really wide head. Can we push it in a little bit? I always tell (laughs) them, nope, we're not (laughs) pushing the head. Um, It is what it is. We're just trying to let the rest of it catch up. So again, we're using the the bossed areas as holding points, and that's where we provide total contact, and then the voided space over the flat spots where we want to promote growth. I'm glad you mentioned the brain growth, because I get that question all the time of like, will it they be developmentally delayed will they you know will it affect their brain growth and we're not doing anything to their brain we're not like you said we're not squeezing them it's just the brain's going to grow when it wants to grow which is going to force the head to grow when it wants to grow right and i always explain it to them think of the helmet as a mold that that it will grow into that their head will grow into so the helmet it's actually made to be the shape that we want their head to be at the end of treatment and as their head grows it fills that spot those voided spots in and becomes that final head shape that we want to see that's more rounded out and more symmetrical well and then I also always get the question I assume you do too of like well what will happen if I don't get the helmet like if parents are kind of on that fence should we do it should we not they always ask 
well, will it fix itself? What will happen if we don't do it? Like, give us worst case scenario. What is your response to those questions? So I get that question all the time as well. Probably one of the top (laughs) questions I get from parents when, especially if they're struggling with that decision. Uh, The number one thing I do tell them is that if it is a mild case, at the end of the day, it is more cosmetic. And um, I don't necessarily recommend a helmet for a more mild case. I let the parents decide if it is mild. I don't want to push them one direction or another. I tell them it's their choice and they can decide what is best for their child. But at the end of the day, mild cases are more on the cosmetic end. So nothing medically that we would be concerned about. For the severe cases, uh, we start to worry about some of the facial asymmetries. So the skull is connected to the facial bones as well. Um, not directly, but they're, they all interact and they're separated again by those sutures. So as the back of the head flattens and pushes forward on the ear and the forehead, it's also pushing forward on the bones of the face. So the cheek, the eye, the mouth, the jaw can all be shifted and asymmetrical. So the more severe it is, the more you're going to see those facial asymmetries. And we worry about things like TMJ in the future as the kid gets older, if there's malalignment of the jaw, or you can worry about vision issues if one eye is a little bit farther forward than the other, or if the eye socket's a little bit asymmetrical, different things like that is what we worry about. I get the most common question I get is, can they wear a bike helmet when they're older? Can they wear a hat or is it going to be uncomfortable? (laughs) Um, Again, if it's mild, I tell them, no, they'll be fine. Um, But I have had parents that come back with a second kid and they said they didn't get a helmet with the first and now their child complains about the helmet that it doesn't fit comfortably or that they notice that it fits sideways on their child's head, things like that. So I do get parents that come back and make those comments. And so that is surprisingly probably one of the most common questions that I get about hats and helmets for bikes and things like that in the Mm -hmm. future when their kids get older. I also get a lot of questions about with the ears being malaligned about wearing glasses in the future right because I've had parents can be like mom and dad were like we both wear glasses so it's almost guaranteed they're probably gonna have poor eyesight and have to wear glasses and we can see that the ears aren't aligned well like can they not wear glasses in it especially if it's mild yes they could still wear glasses like right I mean I wear glasses you just got to get them bent a little bit differently that's it but along with the like bike helmets the hats beanies I also get glasses questions all the time yep so you mentioned you know it is especially for the mild cases more cosmetic with it being deemed as cosmetic we have a lot of issues getting it covered by insurance sometimes can you I know you've done a lot of research on this and you did a whole project on it so (laughs) (laughs) can you go over can we get it covered by insurance and what that process sometimes looks like? Yeah. So insurance is not my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> um, but I did research my during my orthotic residency because I was very interested because in school we were told a lot that helmets were not covered because they were deemed cosmetic. And so I was very interested in that. And I decided to do a retrospective study at our office and taking old charts that we had already built out and whether they were paid or not and why they were paid or not. Um, And it made me dive into a lot of different insurance policies and what they require for coverage of a helmet. And I realized they're all very similar and I'm not going to go into the details, but it's based on different things like the severity and the age and repositioning is really big. They want two months of repositioning prior to treatment, but they were all relatively similar. And so, yeah, I was able, I get most of my helmets covered by insurance. With that being said, there are some policies that 
flat out from the from the get-go just say we don't cover helmets even if they're severe even if they're severe it's just the policy says no helmets um those are rare but they we do get those occasionally um and unfortunately the parent then would have to pay out of pocket and then other insurances we've had denial for those but they follow the policy so if there hasn't been two months of repositioning they're going to deny it Mm -hmm. but we can appeal it once two months of repositioning is complete and then they can get the helmet covered under insurance so i took that on and make that a priority even today with my patients to do everything i can to get them coverage because especially if their policy allows it due to medical necessity and i believe it's medically necessary i 100 percent, i'm going to work with those parents and do what i can to make sure that they don't have to take on that cost how do you measure, make a helmet? Like, how are you getting those ranges of mild, severe? Like, how are you even figuring that out? Yep. So I'll take you back a little bit. Before mm-hmm. my time, um, they actually used to make the helmets from plaster models. So what that entails is actually using plaster bandage. So think of getting a, you know, a plaster cast, old school style, um, but putting that on a baby's head. And it takes about 10 minutes to set off and dry. So you have to mold it to the baby's head and let it sit there for 10 minutes. Yeah. Thankfully, I never had to do that. I still to this day, I've only ever had to do that on a classmate when I was in grad school who was an adult and could tolerate it pretty well. Um, Not having to have to do it on a baby has been very nice. Uh, And I've been lucky enough to work at an office that's had a scanner. So there's scanners, lots of, you know, with technology today, there's lots of 3D scanning that we can do now, Um, not only in helmets, but with all orthotics and prosthetics, it's kind of become the world that we are all in now, which is great. And we work at a company, as you both know, that is really technology forward, which is nice. Uh, So what I use personally is called the Star Scanner. It's a scanner that is distributed by OrthoAmerica, who manufactures the helmets that I provide. And it is a scanner that's purely made to scan babies' heads. There's no radiation. It just uses eight cameras and an iSafe laser to take a 3D topographical image of the head. I get parents always look at the image after and they're like, oh, is that the bones? I said, no, it's just the top (laughs) outside of their head. Uh, But it is a 3D image. And so what the manufacturer does is they take that 3D scan, they modify it on the computer to make it symmetrical and rounded out. They then use a printer, 3D printer, or not a 3D printer, I'm sorry, a carver. Carver. That's the word I'm looking for. A carver to carve out the, the mold of the head, the corrected head shape in foam. And then they pull the foam and the plastic over the foam mold, which is then sent to me to fit on the baby. And so along with using the scan to manufacture the helmets, the scan is also used to make measurements. So I okay. I take hand measurements and we can do um, free assessments and just take hand measurements or we can do a more involved evaluation that includes the scan and reporting and we get much more detailed numbers and much more accurate numbers by doing the scan and that with those numbers it lets me know if it's mild moderate or severe and that along with activity level age repositioning history whether they have torticollis or not there's a lot that goes into my recommendation of whether or not they need a helmet And you did mention the manufacturer, uh, Ortho America. I mean, I use the same system that Brittany does because, again, we're very lucky to be in an office that has star scanners 
at almost any office that we go to and work at, which is really nice um, because it's one of the, in my opinion, one of the easiest scanners to use with the kiddos because like Brittany was saying, you know, it uses those eight cameras and that laser. But what she didn't mention is it's literally a second and a half. Yes, you have to have the kiddo perfectly still, but you only need them still for a second and a half. Yeah, the other scanners from experience are not as easy (laughs) the baby um especially now because of phones they think their pictures are being taken so they follow the light because they and they'll like smile and it's so cute in the moment and then you're like no you gotta gotta like stay looking forward (laughs) and they'll just follow the camera smiling thinking their photos being taken and i was like this is this isn't what i asked for (laughs) that's why oh i hit the mic (laughs) Yeah, so to go off of that, what Lena is talking about is also another technology that is offered by OrthoAmerica, but it basically is just using a phone, the camera on a phone, to take the 3D image, which is pretty crazy, and it's really cool technology, but it's a lot harder of a scanning process. There is a major learning curve. I remember when I started using that technology, it... Each scan would take me maybe five minutes. And then when I got better, it went down to maybe one and a half to two minutes for a good, you know, baby that was uh, easy to handle. For the nice ones. And then it's tough because you take the scan, you look at it and you're like, okay, this this may or may not work. And then you pull it up on your computer and then that takes like a whole nother five minutes because, you know, internet doesn't work. And then there's a whole bunch of connectivity issues. And then the scan's just awful. You're like, yeah. crap. <laughs> gotta go. I gotta do it. all of this again. <laughs> yes. But so. there are some benefits to it being more mobile than yes, the scanner yeah. that we use. So you can take it in to do it yeah. other locations and things like that. So there's pros and cons. Definitely. I'm not dissing the system. It's more <laughs> of a user error, if we're being honest, which is why I don't do it. <laughs> yes. The star scanner, it's hard also to go from the star scanner to the other which is called SmartSock, the other yeah. device for scanning, because the star scanner is just kind of user-friendly and pretty simple, uh, and it's very accurate, which is great for getting good-fitting helmets and accurate measurements along the way. And it's very intuitive, too. Like, it doesn't take long to figure out how to work the system, how to get a good scan, very easy. Um, picked up a few little tip the hardest part is getting the kiddo to stay still for a second and a half and so it's light up toys are the best yes i was gonna say we've got little tips and tricks yeah spinning making noises light up toys all of that because you just kind of need to like shock them and be like "Ooh, what is that for two seconds that's all you need yeah, it's always my favorite, you know, when there's a baby in the office because you just hear those like obnoxious toys in the background. Hear all like, the sounds. Oh, <laughs> someone's scanning today. Yep. <laughs> so with the manufacturer making the helmet, it is not something that we make in the office. Like we do a lot of things that we can make in, you know, in our lab, just in the back of the office. Um, can you talk a little bit about why we don't do that? Yeah, so cranial helmets are, I believe, as far as I'm aware, the only orthotic device that is considered class two under FDA medical devices. Uh, Everything else that we provide is class one or most of everything else that we provide, which class one is low risk. And so there's regulation about the manufacturer uh, registering the device, labeling it and having basic quality control. That's kind of the lowest. And then 
class two is considered moderate risk to patients. And the reason cranial helmets are class two is because you're actually changing the shape of this baby's skull. So there is a little bit more risk if you're not well-educated and you don't have a well-fitting helmet. So the FDA is regulating the manufacturing process of this helmet, and it just has higher requirements and has to be FDA approved, the the manufacturer themselves. So if we wanted to make them in-house, we could, but we would have to go through the process with the FDA to make sure that our manufacturing process is approved by FDA in order to fit and provide those helmets, which can be time-consuming and costly. So not to say it can, it's not possible, but from our standpoint and our business manager decided that it was better route to go with an outside manufacturer, and that's why we use Orthomerica. Yeah, and it's been a year now or so. I went and visited Orthomerica's um, manufacturing, you know, their lab and everything. And it's really interesting because they gave us a tour and they talked about having that FDA regulation and they cannot change a single thing unless they go through this whole process with the FDA. And so it takes a long process. They get, you know, FDA goes in and they get audited like once a year and go through a whole bunch of their files. And it's surprisingly really regulated i was impressed with when they were giving me the tour of how much they talked about the fda regulations and how much they really have to follow it to the t yeah as far as i know helmets are the only fda approved device that we provide and i only know of a handful of manufacturers that even that even do provide them yeah there's only a couple of them Okay. So kind of going back to your recommendations for parents, for pediatricians that are listening, doctors, anyone, what age do you like? I know I have my preferences. What age do you like seeing the kiddos? Don't let me go on for too long here, but (laughs) (laughs) this is your soapbox. This is my soapbox. Um, If you're a therapist or your doctor listening, this is your take home chance. Uh, the best age to start a helmet, meaning fit and delivered out the door, is f- anywhere from four to six months. So that means I need to evaluate them at least two weeks before that if we don't need authorization, and even earlier if we do need authorization. <laughs> so I'm going to dive in a little bit deeper, if you'll let me, into the reasoning behind why that four to six month is kind of our sweet spot. And I know there's a little bit thing of adjusted, not adjusted. Can you go over that as well? Oh. Good point. Yes. So babies that are born premature or before their full term 40 weeks gestation uh, have what we call an adjusted birth date. We all I only really start calculating that if it's more than a month, because technically up to 37 weeks, they're considered full term. So any baby that's 36 week born at 36 weeks gestation or prior is considered premature and we go by what we consider their adjusted birth date. So the easiest way to think about that is the age that we calculate for each baby is based on their due date, not their actual birth date. So if they were right. 1 month premature and the day they come to my office they're 4 months adjusted, they're actually 3 months. And so the reason we do that is because the skull is maturing at their gestational age or their true due date birth date more accurately than it's growing at their true birth date if they were premature. Makes sense. Yeah. How does that make sense? I'm sorry. 
How <laughs> does that happen? That if a baby is born early, because their bones are still growing at the rate of the day that they were supposed to be born. Like I can say the words, but like. It's hard to make a match in your brain. Yeah. 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 So my my daughter was actually 36 weeks and four days. So she was just barely premature. But she was, everyone was shocked at, because she was six pounds, 13 ounces. And they were like, what? There's no way she's a preemie. See, that's, so, yeah, it's like there's preemie babies, but yeah. they're born like a yeah. normal or average way of a baby. Right. But, but her, but yeah, the same. development of the sutures and the bones is going to be based on her actual due date so she's a month early because if you imagine she's supposed to be not born until 40 weeks of gestation so that development that would have happened in utero is just now happening outside but it's still happening but that's why we have to delay it because if you have a baby that's born and i've seen some all the way up to 26 weeks premature Um, yeah then that there's no way that 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 26 week premature baby in school is going to be the same size and and grow the same way as a fully 40 week gestational baby yeah that makes sense okay yeah Yeah. so it's hard to think about when it's just one month two months like wow does that really matter but if you go into the extreme that's when it starts to make more sense okay but that's why and and again the reason one month makes a difference is what i'm about to get into so the growth of these the, the the skull and the brain happens so rapidly when these infants are young and by young I mean one to three months like very young and so a little background again the way that the skull or the bones of the skull grow is actually by pressure of the brain so as the brain gets bigger it pushes on the bones of the skull and they start to push away or open up where those suture lines are and as the bones pull away from the sutures, bone likes to grow to bone. So those sutures start to close up, start to close up, and then the brain gets bigger and pushes them out, and then the sutures start to close up, and that's how that bone starts forming more and more. And so the brain is just growing rapidly. I I want to say like 80% of brain growth happens in the first two years of the baby's life. 80% of their whole entire life brain growth is in the first two years so it's very rapid so the younger the reason we want to get these kids in younger is because they're growing a lot faster and the like I mentioned before how the helmet works is by them filling in that voided space so the quicker they grow the quicker they're going to get correction and the better correction they're going to get because on top of growing quickly when they're young as they get older and that growth slows down the sutures start to fuse and the bones themselves start to get stiffer. And as they get stiffer, they're harder to change shape. They're not as malleable and it makes it harder to get correction. A lot of people ask me, well, if younger, the better, why not start at one month? Um, And the reason that four to six months is our sweet spot is because at four months is when they start to develop enough neck strength to hold up their head with a helmet or hold up their head on their own so that they can support the helmet. Um, So if I get a kiddo in there that's you know, kind of got a wobbly head and doesn't have good neck support, uh, unless it's incredibly severe head shape, I'm going to recommend waiting till that, that neck strength gets a little bit better. Um, because that'll make a, a big difference once we put the helmet on them. And so I will start again, four to six months. That's my sweet spot. I want to get a baby in a helmet by six months. And I know that they're going to get really good correction and really good treatment. Not to say if they're older, we can't. I've seen lots of kids starting at seven, eight, 
um, all the way up to 12 months where we start treatment. But the older they get very consistently, the less correction we get because that growth is slowing down. Those sutures are starting to fuse and the bones are just getting stiffer. So I personally will provide a helmet for a kiddo usually up to about 12 months as the starting age. And then 18 months is kind of the hard cutoff. Uh, a lot of medical policies state right in them that it's indicated up to 18 months, but not beyond that. And at that point, the reason we go up to 18 months is because after 18, the growth is so slow. The sutures are mostly fused. The bones are so stiff that you're not going to see much correction. And you're actually probably going to start to get skin irritation because you can't you can't change the shape anymore. So they're just going to grow into that helmet, how the head already is formed. It can't be reformed, basically. Well, and also along with that, also the older they get, like once they're 18 months, usually they're up and walking. And so they're not spending all day on the back of their head. They're not always. And if they've ha- had torticollis, hopefully by then it's a lot more stretched out and they have a lot more range of motion. So they're not always spending a lot of time on the back of their head, having that gravity kind of work against them. And so also at that age, we don't see it a lot getting worse. Whereas when they're younger, I've had a couple of kiddos where I do see them pretty young. Um, I tell parents, focus on repositioning, try and get them to sleep on the other side of their head, all this different stuff, but their you know, neck isn't strong enough. They're not old enough. All this stuff, let's wait a little bit. And then I bring them back in for a follow-up, see where they're at. And even though parents are trying to do repositioning, they're just still getting worse because the kiddo still likes to sleep on that side of their head. Um, So because at that four to six months, they're, like Brittany was saying, their school is still very malleable. There's also the potential for it to get worse Mm -hmm. if they do continue. But there's also that potential for it to get better on their own as well if, you know, they are really receptive to repositioning and parents are able to get them tummy time very consistently. They can also get better on their own. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing that we do see pretty consistently in research is that repositioning and that tummy time is really effective up to about six months. After about six months, sometimes you just need a little bit of outside help. Mm. And the main reason for that is because on top of, you know, the bones getting stiffer, the biggest reason is the activity level. So if you look at developmental milestones of a baby, by six months, they should be rolling over on their own, starting to sit with support, maybe on their own as well. Uh, They're a lot more independent in their movement than they were at four months. And so if you just try to lay them down and turn their head to the right, so that they're not on the flat spot on the left side, they're not going to care. They're just going to turn right back to the left side or roll right over. So they become that repositioning becomes a lot less effective because the baby's just going to do what it wants to do. Wants to do. Yeah. And I do want to make one comment too. four to six months again is the best time to start with the helmet. But I, by all means, love seeing kiddos when they're younger. Uh, I had one kiddo that came in at two months old, but one month adjusted and so very young and could not start a helmet, but it was so nice to be able to have that starting baseline because that kind of gives parents an idea I gave. And then it allows me the opportunity to go over in detail how to reposition and what to do to help prevent it from getting worse or to 
maybe have it get better on its own to the point they don't need a helmet. So with that baseline, what I can do is scan them and then I see them, you know, one or two months later to see how they're doing, if they're getting better or worse. And it helps, I think, also with the parents make that decision of, hey, you know, over the last month, we didn't see any improvement and we tried our best at repositioning. So it probably won't get better on its own. Let's go forward with a helmet without wasting some of that precious time uh, that we need during that good growth. So if we can get them in even earlier before four months for evaluation, that's the best. With them growing so quickly, I know we always have the goal of just doing one helmet. And how often do you see kiddos having to have more than one helmet? So it's pretty rare. I probably can count on one hand how many kids in the past I've had to do more than one helmet on. Most of them can be fixed with a single helmet from not only the correction that the manufacturer builds in, but then beyond that, I can carve out the foam and and continue to modify the helmet to get as much out of a single helmet as possible. So not to say it that it'll never happen, but it's pretty rare that they would need a second helmet. I know not all manufacturers and not all companies uh, have that same policy or have the same um, procedure. Yeah. So I've, I've heard that others usually require more than one. I've gotten comments from parents and things like that. So not to say that across the board, but personally for me, I feel like I can do most in one helmet. Yeah. I know you've done helmets a lot more than I have. Um, But in my experience, because of the way our manufacturer does their helmets and, you know, us being able to carve out more of the foam as the kiddos grow, I haven't had any patients yet have to do two helmets, which is nice because typically insurances will only cover one if they cover them. So Mm. not having to have the parents pay out of pocket for a second one is really good. So I know you talked about average, like, yeah, thank you. Mm Took the words right out of my mouth. Average age that you want to see them. But with starting, let's say you take perfect case scenario, you see the kiddo, you know, at a younger age or assess, and you see that parents do want to proceed. You're starting getting them in a helmet between four to six months. How long can the parents expect them to be in that helmet? So that's a little bit of a loaded question. Um, (laughs) I will say my blanket statement that I tell all parents just right off the bat, average across the board is four months. But that's a pretty wide range. And uh, I'll go over why. So the biggest factor is age, which you talked about. So perfect scenario, we get them in right at four months. Great. But beyond that, I need to know severity. So they can be young but super severe. That's going to take a lot longer than a young kid that's more towards the moderate to mild range. Right. So... Those are the two main factors, age and severity, and of course, compliance along the way. But from the get-go, if I'm giving a parent an estimate, uh, I base it off of their age and their severity. The more severe and the older they are, the longer the treatment will take. On the long end of cases, usually six months is about the maximum that parents will tolerate and the kids will (laughs) tolerate. And then on the quick and low end, I'd say three months is about the fastest we'll get treatment. I've had a couple who have corrected younger than that or quicker than that, but if they're growing that quickly, by the time that two months is up, they're usually not ready to take the helmet off out of concern of regression. Because if actually, if you take the helmet off too soon and they're not rolling around, they're still preferring one side or they still have a lot of torticollis that needs to be worked out, uh, they can actually regress a little bit. So question 
You mentioned that you don't put helmets on or you don't recommend doing helmet treatment after 18 months, correct? Is that typically the cutoff of wear time of a helmet as well then? So, yes. So if I, for example, if I started with a 12 month old. Full treatment. Yeah. If I started with a 12 month old by 18 months, I would say the helmet's got to come off. So 18 months is the hard cutoff, not for the start date, but actually for the end date of wearing the helmet. Okay. And with having those older kiddos, um, I think you've had some of these patients too, but as the, like, cause you said that's about as long as the parents and the patient will tolerate the helmet. I've had a couple kids, they're old enough, they start getting smart and they start learning how to take on and put off the helmet themselves. Yeah. Oh, yep. yeah. When you get older than kids that are older than a year, they, they learn that pretty quickly. That it's just a quick <laughs> strap undone and the helmet's off. So that can be a struggle. Yeah. They get real smart real quick. <laughs> and one thing we haven't mentioned yet that I want to make sure I don't, don't forget to say, uh, which is another huge question that we get from parents, is how much they have to wear it every day. And this is usually the biggest shocker of parents who haven't done their research before coming in is that it actually needs to be on 23 hours a day. And I always tell the parents, the reason for that is because we don't know when your child's head is going to grow. I wish I tell every parent, I wish I knew that Mm -hmm. your child grows from 5 a.m. to 12 p.m. every day. And then you could just have the helmet on during that time and off the rest of the time. But unfortunately, it's random. We don't know when it's going to happen. And so we have to have the helmet on all the time. And as I mentioned before, the younger they are, the quicker they're growing. So even five hours off during the day, you could miss some growth and you could really change the treatment. Um, and beyond, you know, not capturing that growth, if you imagine taking the helmet off and they grow in what we talked about, the bossed areas where there's total contact, the baby could actually outgrow the helmet before treatment's over because they're going to grow in the areas where there's already contact, creating too much contact and causing an ill-fitting helmet. Uh, so I, I really, 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 uh, urge and discuss with the parents the importance of wearing the helmet the full 23 hours a day. So when you're talking to these parents, I know I've gotten a few interesting comments, um, but what is the biggest complaint that you get from parents about the helmet? I would say number one complaint is that it smells. (laughs) (laughs) So the babies, you'd be surprised at how much babies can sweat. Oh my goodness. I always tell parents that and they're like, oh yeah, my baby's, you know, a pretty sweaty baby. And then you put this helmet on them and they're like, oh my goodness, I didn't think they could sweat anymore. Uh, yep, so, I get that all the time. <laughs> yeah, the, the helmet causes them to sweat, which unfortunately causes bacteria to kind of build up in the helmet, which creates a little bit of an odor. And so that is for sure the number one complaint, but we definitely go over how to clean it and how to help uh, with that. And usually the first week is the worst. After that, their body adjusts and it gets a little bit better. Uh, other comments that I've gotten is that they can't cuddle and snuggle up with their baby like they used to, uh, because they've got this big hard helmet on them and they, you know, are used to snuggling close and giving them kisses, which now having a daughter, I can totally understand that would be really hard to not be able to do that (laughs) for a few months. Yeah. Yep. And we did talk earlier about the comments. I get a lot of concern about the comments that other people give them about their child. I get a lot of, um, just upset parents about those situations. And then the last thing is just uh, sometimes kids will get minor rashes. Well, most, I would say most kids actually do get a minor rash that first week. Uh, But 
almost all of them, it resolves within a few days and never comes back. It's just a little bit of irritation from the direct contact against the skin with the helmet and the moisture that builds up between the two. I'm saying a lot of sweating in between the helmet and the skin. Yep. So you said that they were, you wouldn't recommend putting a helmet on a kiddo under a certain age if they don't have the right neck strength. Um, what other scenarios do you typically not recommend a helmet? Because it's not like every single patient that comes to you, you're throwing a helmet on them as soon as you see them. Oh yeah, definitely not. If if they're in the mild range I discussed earlier, that, that I leave up to the parents to decide. Um, I usually tell them if it's something that you notice every day and it bothers you, it'd probably be a good idea to get a helmet. But if you don't notice it and it doesn't bother you, Again, it's just purely cosmetic. It's a little bit of asymmetry or a little bit of flatness, nothing to majorly worry about. I would also um, not recommend a helmet if a child was on the borderline of, you know, moderate, but they had just started repositioning and they were really young and or they just started therapy for torticollis. In those cases, I want to give them some time to see if that repositioning and that physical therapy can be effective before I just throw a helmet on them. But for the kids that are more severe and older than six months, I can assume that repositioning is not going to be very effective. So I would definitely recommend a helmet at that point. What would you recommend for the parents if there are parents out there listening and they start to overthink and look at their baby's heads and they're like, oh my gosh, my baby's head is flat, their neck is tight, they're looking at the TV all the time. All of these situations or scenarios could be running through their head. What do you recommend for the parents who are concerned about this? Like what sort of steps should they be taking to maybe get to a person like you who can kind of help them resolve this issue? Yeah, definitely. Well, I first want to say that there are ways out there to prevent the head from flattening Mm -hmm. and to prevent the need for a helmet. So um, number one is if your child is younger than six months, I would always recommend bringing it up to the pediatrician at their well visits. Uh, But before you even do that, you can get started at home right away with helping to prevent it from getting worse. And what I recommend, number one, the most important thing, tummy time. That's important for development of their muscles and getting them to meet those gross motor development milestones. But it's also really important, excuse me, it's also really important to keep help keep them off the backs of their heads. And I also explained to my parents that tummy time is not necessarily just them on the tummy on the floor because I get comments from parents all the time that their kid just hates it and cries and they don't want to leave them on their stomachs. So I say anytime that they're off the back of their head, whether they're on your chest or if you have them in a carrier where there's no pressure on the back of their head, if you're supporting them while sitting, in my eyes, tummy time in order to prevent a helmet is any time that they are not laying on the back of their head. Um, so that helps repositioning, using different techniques like getting them, you know, turning the crib, rearranging furniture so they can look the other way. Or when you play with them, play and put the toys um, towards the side of bossing so that they look that way more than they look towards the side of flatness. And using different techniques like that, looking at them when they're in the car seat. Are they always, you know, looking out the window to their left? Well, maybe you should put the car seat on the other side so they look out the window to their right and they don't put pressure on that flat spot on the left side. So just throughout the day, noticing occasions that they're putting more pressure on the backs of their heads and trying to do something to change that. And then if they have torticollis or you suspect that they have torticollis and you can suspect it if you notice that they're always tilting their head to one side when they're sitting up 
or if they have limited ability to turn their head to the left or the right, uh, then I would recommend getting a referral to go see a physical therapist and doing some stretching at home to stretch out that neck every day, multiple times a day. And that can help prevent uh, the need for a helmet if, if you're able to resolve that and prevent the um, constant pressure on the same spot of their head all the time. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, I kind of went around, but those are ways to prevent (laughs) flattening. So, if you've done that and you do notice, okay, so I did that, it didn't work, my kid's head's flat, what do I do? Go to the pediatrician. We, unfortunately, cannot evaluate your child um, in our profession. We can't evaluate anybody without first having a prescription from the doctor. So, your first step is going to be speaking with the doctor. Um, Typically, it happens at a well visit. And the doctor, the pediatrician should be looking at this. And they're well aware of plagiocephaly. Um, So, if you bring it up, it's not going to be some foreign idea to them. And if you say, hey, I'm noticing some flatness, um, have them evaluate. I have had scenarios where doctors don't believe in helmets or are resistant to refer for a helmet. And my advice as a parent is, again, you know what's best for your child. So if in your gut you want an evaluation, push for it. Because I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I get parents of eight months old in my office for initial eval and they 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 saw it at three months, but the doctor would not give them referral to eight. And then when I tell them to expect five months of treatment instead of three, they get really uh, frustrated. Mm-hmm. So I, I my yeah. recommendation is push it. It's, it's your right. And I think it, especially right. if your insurance is going to cover it, even if not, and you want to pay out of pocket, that's your right to get that treatment. Um, and unfortunately, we do need prescriptions from a pediatrician. So worst case scenario, um, get a second opinion. But I, I, I think that you shouldn't back down. And if you really feel like that's what you want for your child, uh, c- be consistent and, and come get that referral and, and come see a specialist. And again, an orthotist is who you want to see for the fit and evaluation, but the pediatrician is the one that's going to have to write that prescription. And it doesn't hurt to, you know, if even if you're on the fence about, do I want my kid to have a helmet or not? It doesn't hurt to push for it and just get that evaluation. And then once you get that evaluation, then you can decide. Basically just make your decision with all of the information that's available to you. Um, right. So like if you come see Brittany or and I during that evaluation, we'll go over whether they are mild, moderate to severe, what your chances are either way, what your options are, because there's a lot of different options out there, you know, repositioning for an extra month, see if it gets better or, you know, doing a helmet or not doing a helmet. There's a lot of different choices out there. So if you don't know exactly where they are, mild, moderate, severe, but you feel like you just want to get it checked out, you can also just get an evaluation and then go from there. You don't have to make a decision before you come see one of us. That's fair. That's fair. Just kind of giving them all the information so they can make an educated decision. Exactly. Makes sense. Okay. So then on the flip side, once you do have the parents, you know, we've talked about it a few times in your guys' past experience. You have had a lot of questions from concerned parents, concerned grandparents, I mean, it can be a tough decision for a parent to have to make for their child. You know, they're weighing out all these pros and cons. Are they going to have odd head shapes? How is this going to affect their life? All of these things are probably running through their heads when they see you guys. And they're probably very, very nervous because it's their baby. And it's scary. You know, they're going to a new place. You have to scan them, put them in this giant machine. And (laughs) it's, it's very intimidating. And typically babies are crying and... It's just a mess. 
So with that, being not said, always. <laughs> don't be scared. It's it's not that bad. No, no, no. But that's in in those scenarios. Yeah. Um, but it, it can some parents happen. get very some concerned. Parents can yeah. get concerned and struggle with that decision of having to you know make the call of doing the helmet not doing the helmet things like that how do you approach those parents who are struggling with it and are very concerned about things you know I had cases where parents did their own research and they would come and they'd start crying to me because they're like well I've done this research am I hurting her and all of these things and it's a very tough subject because you know as a clinician as you talked about it it doesn't hurt the baby they can get very sweaty and stinky but it's not gonna do anything to harm the baby so how do you approach those more sensitive situations when there is a little bit of tension and they're worried or nervous emotions yeah there's emotions oh for sure and i mean these you know a lot of these are new moms and so (laughs) the number one thing i can say is i sympathize a hundred percent and even more now that i've had my own daughter who's 14 and a half months i can totally understand the emotions and how hard that is i parents always ask well would you do it on your child and i always tell them i'm biased because i love helmets but (laughs) um but i do get that it's a hard decision and i've thought about that i mean my daughter didn't need one but i when she was at that age and we were you know of course keeping an eye on her head and thinking about whether or not she would need one it you know it does it would be a total change in your routine and what you're doing and things are so crazy at that age already with everything going on being new parents of a new kid and figuring each other out and then just to add a helmet in the mix it just it's a lot so I I sympathize I never make them feel bad or wrong for feeling that way that's it's totally understandable so I try to let them know that that's normal and that it's okay Um, and I never try to pressure them into a decision one way or the other if I'm getting a, a sense that they're just uncomfortable with it and they really don't want it I will never push it on them um i I like to listen to their concerns and and let those hold weight and not just ignore that and and go on with my day. I truly believe from the bottom of my heart that every parent knows what's best for their child. So no matter what I have to say, that parent is the best person to make the decision for that child. And I will always let that be the ruling. Um, So again, that goes back to just not pressuring them. It's my job. And I tell parents that it's my job to offer my professional recommendation based on my research and based on my experience. But at the end of the day, it's just a professional recommendation. It is not the law. It's not a requirement. It's, it's it's what you are comfortable with. So, um, with those parents who are really kind of going back and forth and they aren't sure I'll sit with them and I'll spend the time. I'll go through the pros. I'll go through the cons. I will answer all of their questions. I will give them time to think about it, you know, over the next day, week, month, whatever it takes and just be that resource to answer their questions as needed as they come up. And one thing that I do tell them if they really want to do it um, is that they can have some fun with it. I try to help them enjoy the process by, you know, one thing that parents love to do is decorating the helmet and personalizing it. They can use stickers that a lot of parents go on Etsy and get decals that they put on there. Uh, They get them pan painted there's some great painters out there that decorate these helmets. Um, so I've noticed that that's a little something that is kind of the silver lining in it for some parents of, you know, they don't necessarily love the process, but at least they can have some fun by personalizing it and making it custom for their child. And, and that makes it a little more, more fun for them. So 
Brittany, um, as we mentioned, Ortho America, the manufacturer that we use to make the helmets, they have this program that's an all-star team and you are part of that all-star team. So what does that actually mean and what does that mean and do for you and your patients? Yeah, so I'll I'll go into a little background of what that is. So all-star is just kind of a designated clinician. So the Orth America, again, the manufacturer of the helmets designate all-star clinicians and you have to apply for it. Um, and some of the requirements are that you have to have seen at least three helmets per month and continue up with that um, caseload so that it's uh, somebody who's frequently seeing helmets has a lot of experience. Basically, uh, you have to submit your uh, scans after you're done with treatment. So that way they can kind of keep track of your success rate throughout um, your time treating patients with helmets. And they also use that for research to show how effective uh, the star band, which is the the name of the cranial helmet, how effective they are um, for their their patient population. And I would say the biggest benefit to patients um, that I can provide them by being an all-star clinician is they have a one helmet guarantee. And what that means is that if I follow my protocol, which I promise my patients I will, and (laughs) they follow their protocol by being compliant, then what that means is if we cannot get full correction with one helmet, they are provided a second helmet at no cost to them and we no cost to the insurance. And so you talked about, you know, the compliance and this is, they're tracking your success rate and everything. What is the amount of successful helmets that you get and how successful are they really? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um, parents ask me that all the time. Well, is it even going to work? <laughs> Do I have to go through all this and then not work at the end? Um, and I tell parents it works a hundred percent of the time. If you're compliant, the biggest factors, number one is compliance. So if you come in every week telling or every other week telling me, Oh, I took it off for a day here. I took it off for a day there. Then you can't expect to have great outcomes. Um, so that's number one, the 23 hours a day is key. The number two is the age. If you come in with a kiddo at eight months, it's going to be much more limited correction than if you come in at four months of age. And so for kids who, you know, are in that golden window of four to six months, they're in that, you know, moderate to severe range and parents are compliant, 100%, they're going to get really good correction uh, with a single helmet. As I'm sure the listeners are picking up, I don't do a lot of helmets. You guys do a lot of helmets. We all actually graduated from the same program. We work in the same company. (laughs) So it's very clear that this is sort of a path you two have taken and I've not. Not that I don't enjoy all of the things that we've discussed. And it is something very fascinating. It's just not my niche, which is fine. But yeah, we all went to the same school. We don't really learn about this in school. This is something that you guys took on after we graduated and once we started working. So what kind of drew you to even wanting to do helmets in the first place since it is such like a niche field I'll let you go first on this one Brittany okay (laughs) yeah so um, for me in school we have a great opportunity that we kind of jump around from facility to facility while still in school getting volunteer experience and so we get to see the different niches the different way businesses are run and this prosthetic and orthotic group was one of the facilities on my rotation I ended up doing even more volunteer hours there by choice and then I chose um, this 
company um, for my residency, and now I've stayed with them <laughs> for the last oh, five and a half years. So I, the reason I got into helmets was because I shadowed Glenn, who was is the company owner, and he was my direct manager when I was a resident and he was seeing all the helmets at the time. He was the helmet guru. Everyone in the helmet world knew who he was and uh, he had a, still has and had a great reputation um, in that world. And so he was kind of looking, it was that kind of golden opportunity window where he was looking to take a step away from patient care and do more of the business side of things because um, we were growing, the business was growing and needed someone to kind of fill in for him. And I, during my volunteer, I just really enjoyed the work that um, I saw him doing with the babies and with helmets. And I kind of took it under my wing and, and ran with it. And I, he continues to encourage staying educated. He lets me go to a conference that specializes in helmets every year that I absolutely love. I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> and um, you basically talk about helmets for three days straight with other people that are just as obsessed with helmets as you. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, um, he's really let me take that on and run with it. And I'm so appreciative of it, but I was just given that opportunity. And so I actually now go back to the school every year, which he used to do, but now I do. I go to the school every year and teach uh, just a guest lecture on cranial helmets. And I try to jam pack as much as I can into that four hour session about the clinical experience and give those students some of that background that we don't get that we, you know, we didn't get much of when we were in school. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, that's how I got there. It was really, honestly, Glenn was kind of my, my mentor and guiding force along the way. Similar to my story, but it's replaced Glenn with Brittany. <laughs> um, so I kind of by chance found Brittany's card at our school and decided to contact her and try and shadow her for some of those volunteer hours, which I ended up doing a lot with her. Um, and then, and back then, you know, I found helmets interesting. It definitely is a very niche thing. So a lot of our classmates didn't get to see it. So I thought that was very cool. Of like, I'm getting a lot of exposure to the, something that not everyone even sees in their whole career. Yeah. Which is really nice. And then I did actually apply to PL group for my residency. And really how I fell into it was more with Glenn. He, Glenn is very supportive of like whatever niche you want to do explore it find different areas this is your time as a resident to explore different areas um, but one thing he did tell me is I want you to do pediatrics and I think you'd be really good at it um, I had a little bit <coughs> sorry I had a little bit of a pushback because um, I'm not a kids person and I was like I don't want to deal with babies and crying kids all day like mm -hmm. and so I was like yeah I don't know maybe I'll do a little bit you know just to appease my new boss um and he was like no I think you'd be really good at it I want you to just try it and now pediatrics is by far my favorite part of the field and what I love doing so I was kind of glad that he pushed me a little bit more out of my comfort zone so I kind of fell into it luckily with Brittany because she's also a great mentor but then I really got just a little bit of a shove from Glenn, which I really appreciated. Right, right. Kind of stuck with it. <laughs> Makes sense. It is very fascinating. I mean, from like an outside perspective, it's one of those things that, like, I, like we all said, like we learn about it in school. You learn like very generally what it does, what it's doing to correct the baby's head. I think most people you ask are probably going to say it's easy 
and then you talk to Brittany or Alyssa and you realize very quickly you have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) and it's the idea and the concept of it I think is like pretty easy to understand but there are all these like little nuances and like things that you can do to the helmet and the way you can manipulate it and then the fact that you are like literally changing the shape of a baby's head it's just mind blowing. Yeah, I know yeah. it scares a yeah. lot of a lot, a lot of, of practitioners, uh, incoming yeah. practitioners that I talk to, or even you know some older practitioners who they're like, I don't want to touch that with a ten foot pole because yeah. they're so nervous yeah. because it does change the shape of a baby's head. And you just and have like one bad experience, and all of a sudden you're like, hm, I'm good. Yeah, I'm not right. gonna. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I've had that experience in other parts of the field, but this one I <laughs> I haven't so logged onto it. It's been positive. It's been positive. <laughs> So to end on a little bit happy light note, Brittany, why don't you tell us about, because you really fell in love with this field and you are not necessarily field, but this yeah. little niche of cranial remolding. I love the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, lo- love the field in general, but you really fell in tightly and you really dove really deep and kind of developed our entire cranial program for this company. Um, and you've trained multiple multiple people, not just me. So what makes you enjoy helmets every day? Continuously seeing them and not getting tired of them. What makes you enjoy them? The babies. <laughs> <laughs> I love babies. No. Um, yeah. I, I mean, number one, I just love seeing those babies every day. When I get students in the door who get to experience this and the kids walk out and then the students look at me and there's like, I can't believe you get to work with babies all day. This is great. It is. It is. It's so much fun. I really, truly enjoy that. And uh, I always used to joke that when I got into this niche, I said, this is either going to make me want a kid really badly or never want any kids. And <laughs> it definitely made me want kids even more. <laughs> um, and now you have one of your own. <laughs> yes. Now I have one yeah. of my own and it's still even just just as great as I had ever imagined. So I I just love working with the babies. And I also really enjoy building the relationship with the parents. It's such a unique experience for me compared to other patient populations that we see. Um, Even working with um, pediatrics in general, different pediatric orthotics and prosthetics, the cranial helmets is just different. You're with these parents of newborns that are in such a, you know, interesting part of their life. Um, And even before now I feel like I can I building different relationships because I can relate every parent I probably talk about my daughter at every single appointment now with these (laughs) um parents because it's it's you're going through the same thing and I think that helps them a little bit feel a little more comfortable that I can relate but I truly enjoy those relationships and at the end of the four months when they're all done I I get sad because then I'm, you know, I'm used to seeing them every couple of weeks and all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm not going to see you anymore. So I love getting those cards in the mail that's, you know, updating me and pictures as the kids get older. Um, well, and it's but, crazy because when you start, they're so little. And then by the time you're discharging them from the helmets, you're like, you've grown so much. Yes, <laughs> they grow, they change so much. And like I said, you just, you form this bond with the parents that I don't form with my other patients or other parents of other kiddos that I see. And big picture, it's such a relatively simple solution that has a very big impact on on the parents mostly, but also on these kiddos. I mean, you're changing the shape of their head so that way if they 
shave their head or go bald one day, they don't have a flat spot. So it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a big effect. And um, you have this sweet spot, you know, once they're a certain age, there's no going back. It is what it is for the rest of their life. So you're making this big impact during this really critical time. And the parents are really grateful. And I just, I find it very rewarding. Um, but I just, I genuinely love it from the bottom of my heart. Great. Well, thank you for chatting with us a lot today and sharing us all your experience. Yeah, it's been fun. I always love talking about babies. Talking about babies and what's helmets. not to love. <laughs> I know. They're oh, I could, I could go on forever. So <laughs> you guys can send our uh, podcast an email if you have any questions and want to let me know. I don't mind. I will talk for days. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Definitely. We'll definitely link all of the information to Orthomerica and just a lot of good general information down in the show notes as well. So, yeah, but we'll let you go, Brittany. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. I know the OG team. Yeah. <laughs> back I'm in not action. That cool. I should not say it like that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be back soon. Yes. Special thanks to Brittany for talking with us today. See the show notes for links to more information about the helmets. Please follow us on Instagram at outinalim.pc and Facebook at outinalim podcast to get visuals for each episode and sneak peeks for upcoming ones. You can find us on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. And please subscribe and write a review. You can also email us any questions or comments about what you want to hear at outinalim.pc at gmail.com. For today's episode, music by Evan and Jack, produced by Alyssa, Alina, and Brittany, editing by Michael, and sponsored by Open, Orthotic and Prosthetic National Network.